We're reading from Acts uh, chapter 20, verse 7 to 12. And we carry on from where Paul uh, is with another group of people. On the first day of the week, he came together to break bread. We came together. Paul spoke to the people and, because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we, meet, where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. This is the word of the Lord. I've had uh, four children do their HSC and um, enroll in university and... um, Three of them managed to finish, uh, which meant as a dad, I've spent a lot of time reviewing essays uh, and editing and trying to get things into the word count. Um, Some of you might have read my book and you might think my book goes on and on and on and you'd wish I'd cut some bits out of my book. Um, If there's a bit of Paul or a bit of Acts that I kind of think Luke could have just cut out the story and it would have made absolutely no difference to the plot. It's this story, right? Uh, What does it do? Uh, Like, so so Eutychus falls out a window and dies and and Paul um, raises him from the dead and nobody is there to notice. It's late at night. There's no non-Christians around who kind of go, wow, that's amazing. God must be real. Jesus must be king. I'm going to believe. It's just like a miracle happens and then they just go back upstairs and do what they were doing before. And and it's kind of like, what does this story contribute to the overall plot of the book of Acts? And I'm thinking... Whatever my assumptions are, I suspect Luke has got it in there for a reason. And so I want to dig back in and find out what does this particular little teaching unit, a pericope we might want to call it, what does it contribute to the book of Acts? So, Eutychus uh, is um, a, a young boy, he's probably a teenager. Uh, his name suggests that he's a slave. Maybe that's why he's been working hard all day. Why does Paul raise him from the dead? And why has Luke recorded that story for us? Paul does lots of things that are not recorded. And I think we want to begin by asking, what is the purpose of miracles in the book of Acts? And as I've thought about it this week, I can think of miracles having one of three purposes. The most common thing miracles do is they validate that Paul or Peter's or Philip's ministry is the breaking in of the kingdom. Jesus is the king. There's some spiritual power and authority here that says something is happening. The world is changing. Evil is being overcome, right? And whether that's tongues of fire on top of the apostles whether that's speaking in different languages, whether that's Peter healing people on the way to the temple, 
Paul does the same at the beginning of his ministry. He's in his first non-Jewish setting and uh, he heals someone. And that's a, a, a val- validification of the, the ministry and the words that he's saying, right? Um, and, and we even get a couple of odd clusters of miracles. There's 20 separate miracles and there's nine clusters. And, and Peter just walks and people whose shadow is cast, sorry, Peter's shadow falls on them, they're healed. Or um, we read uh, a couple of weeks ago, Peter's, sorry, Paul's handkerchiefs that have just touched him touch other people and they're healed. I I was in the Holy Sepulchre a few years back. It's a church in Jerusalem. Um, There's Jews there, uh, there's Christians, there's Orthodox, there's Catholics, there's people from all over the world who somehow treat this as a holy place. And there was a bunch of Filipino nuns with hankies, right? And they've got their hankies out and there's a rock there uh, and they think it's the rock where Jesus' body was prepared before it was put into the tomb. And these Filipino nuns are wiping their hankies on the rock where Jesus' body was so that they can take the handkerchief home and put it on their sick relatives. That's kind of weird, isn't it? I stood there thinking, that is not how I think about my faith and my religion as a Westerner, but to see what other cultures were doing. And there's a bit of that going on here, right? There's something powerful about the kingdom breaking in. That's usually what miracles do. They do a couple of other things. Sometimes they're about removing obstacles, for the kingdom breaking in and the gospel message being preached. It might be Peter or Paul being released from prison. It might be Philip going somewhere to people who need to hear the gospel. It might be uh, a a slave girl who um, demonically prophesies and she's getting in the way of Paul's ministry and Paul exercises her demon. Um, Or it might be Paul not falling victim to a snake bite. And then thirdly, there's some miracles that are about judgment about the fact that this kingdom also is a kingdom of righteousness. And when Ananias and Sapphira give some money and say, this is everything we got, and actually it was only part, actually, that, that, there's a judgment there for their lies and their greed and their deception. Or Saul's blindness is both judgment and a sign that Jesus is resurrected. Uh, Elimas the sorcerer um, is, uh, is mute. And so... That seems to be three categories that we can kind of take each of the miracles that happened, 29 or the clusters, uh, and, and fit them nice. And, and those make sense, don't they? Well, this miracle doesn't seem to fit in any of those. So, so what's going on? Um, Paul has been in Troas, or we would know this city better by its Greek name, Troy, uh, for seven days, not that long. He arrives on a Saturday and he stays till a Sunday night. On the first day of the week, so this is the Sunday, uh, we came together to break bread. So they're having some sort of a worship service and Paul speaks. He begins teaching. And because it's the last day he's in town, he keeps talking and talking until midnight. There were many lamps 
in the upstairs room where we were meeting. That's just a bit too much detail, isn't it? Did we really need to know that? If you go back three or four verses, um, we get this thing where Luke says, oh, Paul travelled through Macedonia to Greece and he did lots of ministry and it took him about three months. Incredibly vague, just a half a liner, about three entire months and now suddenly we need to know that there's candles in the room. What's the deal there? Well, the commentator suggests possibly uh, candles suck oxygen or they elicit various kind of aromas that might make Eutychus tired. Uh, Eutychus is uh, possibly quite likely a slave, so maybe he's been working all day and it's getting late at night. And I think also what's going on here is on the first day of the week, we came together. Luke is there. This is a first-hand biographical account and he notices things that are happening. And so there's an authenticity about the way this story is being told. Whereas when, when Paul's off in Macedonia and Greece for three months, Luke's not there. And so we don't get a longer version of that. Anyway, there's many lamps and whether they're sucking the oxygen out of the room, Eutychus is sitting in the window sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talks on and on. And when he's sound asleep, he falls two stories uh, and he's picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Uh, actually, he was dead. The Romans knew how to tell whether or not somebody was dead. Uh, but Paul is speaking kind of metaphorically here and he raises him from the dead. And then they go back upstairs, have something to eat, partially to prove, I suspect, that he's not just a spirit, it's not just a ghost, which is what they would have believed in the first century. Um, also an affirmation of the fact that there's fellowship and teaching. And then Paul just talks on and on and on again. I'm kind of guessing Eutychus doesn't fall asleep after this. Nobody else probably does either. And Paul talks till daylight, and then he leaves, and the people took the young man home alive, and they were greatly comforted. What is the point of this story? I asked my staff at a worship planning meeting on Monday, I said, what's the point of this story? And the non-preaching staff said, oh, the point's obvious. If you preach on and on and on, people die and it's dangerous. <laughs> Interestingly, the preaching staff didn't say that. Uh, so, let me just highlight a couple of features of what's going on here. Um, firstly, Paul's only there for a week. And so this is like an intensive. And he wants to kind of cram everything in. And so probably because of his shortened stay in Troas, actually he's going to do an all-nighter. Uh, and to kind of just uh, smash home the last things that he kind of wanted to say. Does he give a monologue all night? Right? Is this just some pure lecture? Well, actually, uh, the Greek word in this particular passage is dialogamenu, not caruso. There are usually three uh, Greek words used for preaching. 
um, or translated preaching uh, in the New Testament. The most common one and the one that we're most uh, drawn to is the word caruso. And caruso has within it the sense of a king, I'll do it from the Middle Ages, but think the first century, a king who has a town crier. And the king says, I've got a message, this is my message, and he gives it to the town crier, and the town crier goes out into the marketplace and then proclaims the king's message. And that town crier is a herald, a caruso. And there's a couple of features here that are critical. The authority of the message is not with the messenger. It's with the king. And because the messenger doesn't have any authority, they can't change the message, they can't modify it. They just have to say, this is what the king says. This is it, right? Do with it what you want, but the king's authority is behind this. This is the message. And often preaching is using that kind of vocabulary, and we want to say all of that is true about preaching. God is the authority that sits behind his word, and it is our task to faithfully proclaim what God declares to be true. That particular Greek word is not used in this passage. It's dialogamenu, from which we get the English word dialogue. So what's happening is Paul actually is having a discussion all night. It's a back and forth. It's a question and answer. It's uh, a debate, if you like. Uh, and so... I think the point we need to get at this moment is that uh, teaching is not limited to sermonising and to monologues. And Paul doesn't run around and just give speeches. And neither does Jesus, for that matter. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, the structure of Matthew's Gospel is five sermons. So Jesus does preach, the Sermon on the Mount being the classic one we know. But he spends a lot of his time actually dialoguing with people and with his disciples, and that is part of the suite of how it is that teaching is modelled to us in the New Testament. Anyway, Eutychus falls asleep, whether or not it was dialogue or monologue. He falls and dies. Paul heals him, and it's no big deal. And they go back and eat, and then just go back to more teaching. And the people are comforted. So I think the point that we're meant to be getting here is not that there's evidence of the kingdom breaking in. There are no non-Christians watching this. There's not a great sense of, oh, okay, now we know what you're saying is true, Paul, because actually you can raise somebody from the dead. The story just doesn't work like that. There's no obstacles. There's no sense of judgment here. Oh, maybe there is. You don't want to fall asleep during sermons. It's dangerous, right? Uh, no, there's no judgment here. I, I think what's going on is that the emphasis is not on Paul as a miracle worker, but on Paul as a teacher, a preacher, a person who's having dialogue, who's having conversations about the kingdom and Jesus with anyone and everyone he meets. And so it's not, wow, there's a miracle. It's great, let's get back to teaching. So, let's just imagine I'm about to give church notices. Guess what's going to happen in the next week? Um, on next Sunday, I'm going to preach, 
and on Friday night there's going to be an accident at youth group, somebody's going to fall off the roof and die and I'm going to raise them from the dead. Um, don't come Friday, really you ought to come Sunday, right? That's the more critical thing that's happening next week. If, if I could say that, you would all come Friday night, wouldn't you? You'd all be like, wow, that's, like, I've got to see, like, it'd be gory, but I've got to see that. Like, that would be unbelievable. But this story is kind of the spin on that. It's saying, actually, the most important stuff is that Paul is teaching what Jesus taught. And that's what he's got to get in to the heads and the hearts of the people at Troas before he leaves them. Well, we're wrapping up Paul's uh, ministry um, and our journey with him. And in particular, we're wrapping up kind of the end of sort of the second, sort of the third. Ask me about that over morning tea if you want. But he's going to leave Asia for the last time. So let's just jump forward a few verses. Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. He's in Asia for two or three years this time. And it's a tumultuous time, right? So yes, he's humble and he's serving, but there's tears, there's hardship, there's opposition. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we summarize Paul, it's kind of neat because we can do it through the window of Paul summarizing his ministry in Asia. And here's what he says to the Ephesian leaders. Firstly, I lived, I served, I walked alongside you, I was humble, I didn't come here to lord it, to be applauded, to be the center of attention, uh, and there was hardship and opposition and tears. Paul is a really earthy, grounded kind of a guy. He's not a visiting lecturer who turns up and gives talks and has a collection and then leaves. There are plenty of those people in the first century. They're called sophists. And people would naturally compare and contrast Paul with a sophist. And what do we notice? It's this walking alongside that is a feature of Paul. He's eating and drinking and crying and healing and he's up late at night. He's burning the candle at both ends. Why? Because he wants people to meet and to know and to follow Jesus. Secondly, he's doing it publicly and house to house. Publicly, he's doing it firstly in the synagogues, then often he gets kicked out and he goes to the marketplaces. And he's speaking to Jews and to Gentiles. He's speaking to everybody. 
So there's a sense in which he's always trying to make new disciples, but there's also a sense in which he's growing existing disciples, and that's the ministry that's often taking places in houses. That's the more intense conversations, the dialogues like we've just heard about. That's where he's in the upper room, if you like, focusing on the disciples as the end point of his ministry. Sounds like Jesus again, doesn't it? He's doing all of this in the midst of testing and plots. He has to escape out of windows, run from his life. He's locked up in jail. He's beaten. He's stoned. He's shipwrecked. Ministry is a challenge for Paul. It costs him. Again, in the words of Jesus, he's taking up his cross and following Jesus. Or in Colossians, he's filling up the sufferings on behalf of the people that he's serving. Ministry invites challenge and opposition. And we shouldn't be surprised. And perhaps we shouldn't even look around and want to blame. It's par for the course. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. It's happened always and everywhere. And it happens today. Uh, fourth, Paul preached what was helpful, what was beneficial. So preaching is not abstract and otherworldly and spiritual and about the afterlife and of no earthly good, right? Uh, uh, Paul's preaching is relevant and practical and it helps his listeners. And they were people with real needs. 70 to 90% of them are living on the poverty line. There's a slave boy there who's listening to the message, who's flogged himself or he's been flogged all day. And Paul is somehow bringing a message that brings people like that hope. Paul says Jesus is your Lord and Saviour. And in the first century, that means he brings justice. He brings provision. Provision. He brings an absence of war. You could look to Jesus for all of those things and people who had very real, grounded yearnings for that kind of meaning and stability and hope in an otherwise um, hopeless, messy life. Somehow Jesus brings that and Paul teaches that. Let's read on a little bit more. Um, more of Paul's summary to the Ephesians. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. It's a telling moment. Uh, and, and I've three times uh, preached my last sermon to a church I'm leaving. I get to go back occasionally. Two weeks ago, I was at my previous church, and it was special. This is more intense. Paul's saying, I will never see you again. 
Why? Because he knows that actually he will persecute it and ultimately die for the gospel. So what do you do if this is your last chance to say something? Then I declare to you today that I'm innocent of any of the blood of any of you. That's what I said at my last sermons. No, it's not. <laughs> what an odd thing to say. We'll come to that in a sec. Um, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit... Wow, that's a mandate, isn't, isn't it? The Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. We'll come back to that word too. So what else is Paul saying? He's saying that he's preached what is helpful, but it's not just what's practical and relevant to us here and now. Actually, he's also preaching the kingdom. And there are these eternal themes about Jesus overcoming evil and the evil one, about repentance, about citizenship in the kingdom and living as a citizen of the kingdom. And those are the messages that Paul preaches. And somehow those universal messages are always and eminently practical in the present. Paul is held to account for what he preaches. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm, I'm not responsible for the blood of any of you. That is, on the day of judgment, when you come before God and he says, those truths Paul spoke to you, what did you do with those? Paul will be held to account as the messenger who went out into the marketplace with the message that had all the authority and truth of the king who sent the herald. Do you ever think about that? That some people will be held to account and the sense to which you have spoken truths to them, you'll be held to account for that. Wow, that's a responsibility, isn't it? How do you do that well? And Paul's answer is, you preach the whole will of God. Or, and we're here in Sydney Anglicanism, the whole counsel of God was a favourite saying of Broughton Knox and his student and next principal of Moore College, Peter Jensen. Very important saying. What Paul is saying is, I didn't just preach the bits that you wanted to hear. I didn't just preach the bits that happened to fit with culture. I preached everything. I was talking to one of our parishioners last week, and they said, oh, I went to a wedding recently in another local church. Uh, and... Um, the message was, it had two main points. It was a wedding. The message was, Jesus loves you just the way you are. That was the first point. And I want to say, that's true, but it's not the whole counsel of God. Jesus died for you just the way you are, but actually his spirit is at work in you transforming you more and more away from those evil, selfish desires 
into the image of Jesus so that you can reflect God and Jesus is helping you become who you are meant to be. But it is tempting to stand up and say, Jesus loves you just the way you are and then put a full stop at the end of the sentence, isn't it? Put that on your social media forum and people will put a like. Put the whole counsel of God and you'll get some dislikes. The second part of the message was, Jesus is going to make you and your husband into the best versions of each other that you can be because he loves you and that's how he's going to bless your marriage. And I want to say, I don't think that person's been married for very long. <laughs> uh, that's true. I can attest to that. I, I, I have grown because of the dynamics of being married and being married to Marianne. But it's not the whole counsel of God. Marriage is not a walk in a park and one blessing after the other. And life is not that. The whole counsel of God includes reminding people that suffering builds perseverance and character and hope. And that is part of how grow, God grows and transforms us. And as we live in a culture that is moving away from its Christian heritage, the temptation for us to preach something less than the whole counsel of God is just being dialed up. So to talk about Jesus as somebody who loves, who's affirming, who forgives, who tolerates, who says, don't judge, they're all true, but stand alone, they are not the whole counsel of God. And we need to preach a holistic, balanced message that includes the flip sides. So Jesus actually invites us to make judgments the way he judges. Jesus says, has nobody judged you? I'm not going to judge you. And then to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. That's how you can be sure that on the day of judgment, you won't have the guilt of not having spoken clearly to others on your conscience and on the conversation you might be having with God. Lastly, no less than the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I'm leaving. Who's going to look after the church here? The Holy Spirit has appointed you guys as the overseers. Technically, that word in Greek is episkopos. We translate it to episcopal, bishop. God has appointed you guys the bishops. The elders are the bishops. Don't tell the parish council. Uh, unfortunately, the um, categories of bishops are not quite as neat in the New Testament as what we imagine them to be and how we treat them in um, denominations like Anglicanism and Catholicism. Whatever the case, um, there's a responsibility for all of us and leaders in particular to disciple and nurture the next generation, particularly when 
those who have discipled us move on. The task of discipleship is ongoing. And we take what we have received and we pass it on to others. So let me try and wrap up this series by referencing that verse that we had in the kids' talk. Paul is, let me suggest to you, the ultimate content creator. Right? That's kind of very 21st century, isn't it? Like, he writes these letters that are at the pointy end of the most sold book ever. And his ideas changed the Roman Empire and applied the teachings of Jesus to Jews and Gentiles and to a third and more of humanity ever since. What does he do? How how does he be a disciple who makes other disciples, who make other disciples, who make other disciples, who change the empire and who change the world? Firstly, follow me as I follow Christ. So being a disciple maker is not about learning techniques, it's not about having knowledge, it's not about finding platforms, it's firstly about following Jesus yourself. Are you doing that? Nobody will follow you if you're not following Jesus. The first thing you can do, the best thing you can do as a parent, as a husband, as a small group leader, is to follow Jesus. Secondly, follow me as I follow Christ. Is anybody walking alongside you? Is anybody following you? Are you discipling someone? That's a core task. Don't just follow Jesus. Jesus makes us disciple makers who make other disciples. So where is it that you are actually saying, well, you follow me as I follow Paul who's following Christ? Is that happening in your life somewhere? How do you do that? Teach what Jesus teaches. Uh, I think that's the point of the miracle of Eutychus is that actually the cram session of getting into our heads and our hearts, this is what Jesus believed, this is what Jesus taught, um, that is what we need to pass on to people before we move on to the next thing. Is that high on your priority list? Is that what you're making sure you're doing and saying and interacting with the people where you have fleeting windows and limited time and another season is coming. Teach what Jesus taught. Love what Jesus loves. And I'm using the word love here in the way that kind of Augustine uses it or more recently Tim Keller. So Sigmund Freud tells us we get out of bed to procreate or maybe we get into bed, who knows. Um, Paul Augustine, actually what drives us is our deepest loves. What are the things that you are most passionate about, that you spend most of your time dreaming and imagining and wish-fulfilling? Are they the things of the kingdom? Is Jesus the king of those things? Align your hearts 
with those things. That's how you be a disciple. And lastly, do what Jesus does. Jesus says to his disciples, go into all the world, make disciples and teach them to obey. Boil it all down and discipleship is pretty simple. What's the next step? What's the next thing that you have to do that Jesus would do that follows in his footsteps? It's not about a program. It's not about a structure. It's about a relationship of trust and obedience. Paul walked that path and changed the world. And Jesus is inviting you and me to follow him and to change and bring his kingdom where we can. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the grounded example of Paul, a guy with personality strengths and weaknesses, a guy with passions and uh, challenges, a guy who cries, a guy who gets some people onside and some people offside. But ultimately, Jesus, he follows you, he loves you, he lives for you. And because he's a citizen of your kingdom, he brings your kingdom values and experiences to those he loves and serves. Jesus, we want to take the next step in following you and discipling somebody else to follow you so that your kingdom might come here on earth as in heaven. Amen.